Hi, my name is Kim Metcherson, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Camden, and this is The Power of Attorney. In what we hope will become an annual event, I have the absolute pleasure this year of interviewing President Patricia Lee Rifo, who is the current president of the American Bar Association. I am really grateful to have you with us today, Trish, and really looking forward to our conversation. As am I. I'm delighted to be with you, Kim. Thank you. Absolutely. So what I like to do on these podcasts is ask people for their origin story, right? I'm always curious about, given all the different things that you could have done with your life, why law? What made you decide to become a lawyer? So I grew up in a Navy family, um, as far as the eye can see. My father, both my brothers, my grandfather, everybody in my immediate family was a Navy pilot. And when I went off to college, it wasn't an option for me to follow in the footsteps and go to the Naval Academy and become a pilot. I could have gone to the Naval Academy, maybe, because I would have been in the first class of women. But women Mm. couldn't fly jets on aircraft carriers in those days. So I had to come up with a plan B. And my plan Mm -hmm. B originally was journalism. And so I went off to the University of Michigan thinking journalism was what I wanted. And um, there's actually, Kim, an interesting Rutgers connection to this story, because as I was studying some political science classes, I was introduced to a wonderful professor who taught undergraduate law-related classes. His name is Milton Human, and he's now at Rutgers at the political science department. And he opened up for me, as good teachers do, a whole world that I had never considered as a career path. And by the time uh, he was finished opening that world to me, I was off to law school. Great. And so so what was it exactly that he pitched to you about law school? Why did, why did he make it seem like that was a path that could work for you? Well, what he taught me was the power of the rule of law, the power of the common law system, the really grace and majesty of the American legal system at its finest. We don't every day hit that mark, but we aspire to it, don't we, every day. And it it became clear to me that this was an opportunity to make a difference in a larger way and to be part of something that is so important and foundational to our country and to our democracy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Did you have any lawyers in your family? I had one uncle who was a lawyer who, interestingly enough, in Virginia, in Richmond of all places, had as his law partner when I was a kid, the first woman graduate of, I want to say it was Old Dominion University Law School in those days. But anyway, she was a woman lawyer when I was like six and seven growing up. So I always had in the back of my head this wonderful image of Miss Tompkins uh, as a woman (laughs) lawyer. We called her Miss T. And Miss T was just a piece of work. And um, (laughs) if I have any of Miss T in me, then I'm a very fortunate girl. (laughs) <laughs> so um, you went to Michigan for undergrad and then Michigan for um, for law school as well. And I always also love to hear people talk a little bit about their experience in, in law school. You know, we all sort of get told to be really sort of afraid 
before that first year of law school. And, and that first year of law school is often very challenging because, as I say to students, we are teaching you a new language and we are teaching you a new way to think. And that can be a really tough transition for folks. So what was, what was your law school experience like? It was transformative and a little scary all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to your point, yes, you are learning completely from scratch, uh, a, a new vocabulary, a new system, a new everything. And there is both sort of wonder and, and a little bit of fear in all of that. But my law school experience as a whole was a bonding experience, certainly with my law school class. When we get back together, it everyone steps right back to where they were in terms of the relationships. It doesn't matter that you haven't seen somebody since the last reunion five years ago. You pick up as if you just walked out of class five minutes ago and are catching up on the day, right? So it was, it was, it was a, a challenging and really wonderful experience. I will say, however, that when I was invited back not long ago to, to speak, to the faculty at my law school, which was a huge privilege. It was probably the most single terrifying thing I've ever done. To walk in front of some of whom were actually my professor, right? And I'm yeah. the one in the front of the room. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> but I got through it. So there. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. There's always this time period after students graduate where they refuse to call me by my first name. And I have to keep telling them, you know, you're a lawyer now, you've graduated, we can actually be adults together. So yeah, it's definitely, definitely an an intimidating experience to be back in front of your, your law school professors. It was just, I hold them still in such high regard. Uh, And the, when you are introduced to someone, as you say, as sort of the youngster in the relationship, um, it is sometimes that the, the vestiges of that stick with you, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so af- after you graduated from law school, I mean, you've obviously been practicing law for, for quite some time now. You have been um, incredibly successful as a lawyer over the years. And, and I, so I want to talk to you about your career. And in particular, I'm always interested in talking to women lawyers about their experience in the field. You know, we have had law school classes that are basically 50% women for many, many years now. And yet when you get out there into the world, particularly into the, the big firm world, we see lots of women who end up leaving the law, you know, who may be on partner track and then end up leaving and, 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 and don't end up, you know, building that long career in the law. So one of the questions that I love to ask successful women is, you know, who were the people who were your mentors and your champions that helped you have the career that you've been able to have? I've been incredibly privileged to practice at two law firms in my career. I started at Jenner and Block in Chicago. And then when I moved to Phoenix, because I got married to a a Phoenix lawyer, whom I met, by the way, at the American Bar Association, but that's another story. Uh, I've (laughs) I've been at Snell and Wilmer in Phoenix ever since. And at both of those firms, there have been men and women who have been my mentors and my allies. I was extremely fortunate. As a young lawyer, I mean, I graduated in in 1983, there weren't very many women 
who were at the top of the food chain uh, in, in law firms in those days. There still aren't enough, but there were very few back then. But one took me under her wing at Jenner and Block, Joan Hall, who at the time was already um, on the executive committee. She had chaired the litigation section of the American Bar, which was and is the largest section of the ABA. I mean, she was and is an amazing lawyer and uh, example. And she has still mentors me, right? I mean, she reached out to me last week because she read something that I had gotten published uh, in a newspaper and she read it and, and reached out and said, Yahoo. So having actual examples of someone who actually kind of looked like me, right? I mean, we all understand that was deeply important, but I had plenty, plenty of men and still do who mentor me, who have helped me in, in this role I'm in right now. For example, the former presidents of the American Bar Association, men and women, have been there for me at every step to make sure that they're supporting the work I'm doing, that when I need help or need advice, that they are there to give it to me. So I'm, I'm very, very blessed to have so many folks over the years who have invested in me. And uh, I'm sure like you, Kim, I work very hard to try and pay that forward by doing the same. And whenever somebody does something to mentor me, I think to myself, okay, now you have a responsibility today or tomorrow or this week to do that as well for someone else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the challenges that often, I would say young lawyers in general, but since we're talking about women lawyers, I'll focus on that, is figuring out how, how are you supposed to identify somebody you know, who, who's going to be your mentor? Do you just walk up to someone and say, hey, I need you to be my mentor? You know, what, what advice do you have for, for young women who are entering the profession now in terms of thinking about how do you sort of build, build your team, right? The people who are going to help you go through your career and, and be successful, hopefully, in that career. I've always found that the most important relationships are the ones that form naturally. That's not to say we shouldn't have formal assigned mentors in law firms and in other sorts of practice settings, because that's very important. But in addition, we need to find the mentors that work for us because we've built that relationship. It's not true that you learn from everybody necessarily. That's just true in human dynamics, that some persons are going to click in a different way with you. And so finding somebody with whom you have a natural working relationship and building on that has, in my experience, been the most useful mentoring that I've ever had. Mm -hmm. Finding someone who is sometimes quite different from you, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I have learned over the years, especially as a litigator, how important it is to work with lots of different people who, for example, approach uh, a cross-examination in completely different ways, because that's how you get to watch and learn what works best for you, what's authentic for you. And I think especially in litigation, but that's only because that's what I know, that's deeply important. <laughs> how did you decide what kind of law 
you wanted to practice? I mean, one of the, one of the things that's, that, that you see a lot if you are a law school professor is students who come into law school and have these really strong ideas of, of you know, what they want to do. They want to do health law. They want to do international law. They want to do financial law. And often they actually have no idea what that looks like in practice, right? So uh, I, I wonder how you decided what kind of law that you wanted to practice and then, you know, what made you decide to stick with it? Um, I think that's a great question. And, and one of the things that I tell law students when I get the opportunity to speak to them is that I think the sort of coming out of law school decision is really a, am I in the courtroom or am I not in the courtroom kind of a decision? Because that's really something that I believe most law students have enough experience with themselves and with the profession to be able to decide. Much past that, (laughs) I would reserve judgment. Of course, there are exceptions, right? There's someone with a deep science background who went to law school knowing that he or she wanted to go into patent work. Fine, there are exceptions. But in general, I did not so much decide where I wanted to start my practice as over time had experience in different areas and decided what I liked the most. Mm-hmm. And if, if you had said to me, for example, when I was in law school, that one of the things that I would spend um, a significant chunk of my career working on was class action defense work, I would have said, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Well, but it turns out not only is it interesting, I was good at it, right? And so I've done a bunch of that over time. I've certainly done other things as well, but my personal experience has been more developing the the sort of the procedural skills. How do you prepare a case for trial? How do you try a case if you need to? How do you get a case settled uh, if you need to do mm-hmm. that? And then have applied those skills to a number of complex commercial litigation sort of areas over time. Mm -hmm. I would love to ask you a little bit of a technical question, and you can tell me if if you don't want to go down this road, but I I am not a, a civil procedure professor. I'm a torts professor. But one of the things that I think has been really interesting is the proliferation of class action lawsuits over the last you know, several decades. And I just think about just reading your email and something will pop up and say, hey, you're a part of this class or you're a part of that class. Something you've, you, you know, that just sort of comes out of nowhere. And I know that in addition to being a really fantastic lawyer, you're also somebody who has had opportunities to think about, you know, how we reform our rules of evidence and how we sort of think about um, our judicial system. And I wonder really about as somebody who's been doing, you know, this work, what do you sort of see as as the future of class actions? I mean, on one hand, I think a lot of people look at them and say, well, it's really important to be able to bring together, you know, huge groups of people. And other people will look at them and say, we're, we're out of control here, right? We need to sort of figure out a, a better way for our, for our system to move forward. I'm curious if, if you have, I'm sure you have some thoughts about it. Speaking only for myself and not on behalf of the American Bar Association, you just articulated mm-hmm. exactly the, the challenge and the tension between, uh, on the one hand, providing a mechanism for someone who suffered a very small injury, but that injury was repeated against a large number of people, right? 
that's sort of mm -hmm. on the one side. And on the other side is the potential for abuse of a system that because it allows the aggregation of tiny claims can make a small thing into a very giant thing too quickly. So the yeah. law has worked over the years and continues to struggle with how best to articulate and, and protect both sides in that equation. And, you know, like so many things in the law, Kim, it's, there isn't a perfect answer. It's yeah. all about attempting, endeavoring, trying to do the very best we can in a justice system that is created and run by human beings. And any institution that is created and run by human beings is going to be imperfect. And that's why we, we search constantly for how to do better. And class actions is but one example of the many ways that our justice system continues to try to strive to be better, to be more just, to deliver more justice, and to get us toward that more perfect union, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I want I want to segue here. I mean, on one, on one hand, I want to hear a little bit about the decision you made to get deeply involved in the ABA. I mean, even before you were the ABA president, you were doing a lot of work with the ABA. So I do want to talk about that a little bit. And then I want to go back to what we were just talking about in terms of our justice system, because, you know, 2020 gave us opportunities to think about a lot of different things. Certainly one of those things is thinking about how our, particularly how our criminal justice system works, but also how our democracy works um, in general. So let's do the easy part first, <laughs> which is getting involved with the, with, with the ABA. You know, one of the things I think that, that law students often don't think about is what other ways can I or should I be involved with the profession besides the work that I do on a daily basis that that pays my bills. So what, you know, what was the thought process for you that said, I, I want to be involved with the ABA, I want to spend time there, I want to do the work that is, you know, required in order for the ABA to really be successful in what it's meant to do, right, which is sort of be this representative organization for the, the thousands and thousands of lawyers in the US. So why, why allow the ABA to start taking up your time? So you used kind of the, the key word in your, in your question there, which is profession. And it's because becoming a lawyer isn't getting a job. Becoming a lawyer is becoming part of a learned profession. We have this wonderful mystical language about being called to the bar about passing the bar, meaning being allowed in a courtroom to pass the barrier uh, between those who are not part of the learned profession and those who are. Deeply important to understand that professions require, among many other things, active participation to engage in self-governance. That is an enormous privilege that we as a learned profession have been given. We regulate ourselves. We decide for ourselves who can be admitted to our profession. And when I say ourselves, I'm including obviously our courts who are run by people who went to law school too. So the, the American Bar Association, the organized bar in every state is part of that self-governance. 
it was and is my belief that every lawyer has a responsibility, frankly, to be part of that process. Some of us do it actively. Others of us do it with our financial support through our membership dues. But we are, by, by supporting the organized bar, we are supporting and carrying forward the self-governance of our profession. The American Bar Association in particular has two core functions of accrediting the law schools in the United States, which is obviously hugely important, uh, and promulgating the model rules of professional conduct for our profession. It doesn't mean that states don't alter and modify those model rules. They, of course, do. But those two core functions are deeply important to the work of the American Bar Association. That's before you get to all of the stuff we do around the rule of law, around continuing legal education, etc. But we are the voice of the national legal profession. And as the voice of the national legal profession, the ABA is often asked to step in, in in really big ways. So for instance, you know, the ABA is often asked to weigh in on new judges who are being appointed, or the ABA is asked to weigh in when there are big issues in the world surrounding lawyers. And in the last year or so, we've had a lot of public conversation um, about lawyers for a range of reasons. And so I want to I want to talk a little bit about Law Day uh, this year, where the theme is advancing the rule of law now. And the last presidential election gave us lots of opportunities to think about our democracy, to think about voting rights, to think about what elections should look like, to think about what responsibilities lawyers have as they are working with campaigns or even the many, many lawyers who sit in Congress, what kinds of responsibilities they have as well to think about and to advance the rule of law. So when we look back on the year that we've had, and in particular, I think when we look back on the January 6th People are using different words for it. I will, I will go ahead and use insurrection, although I know that, that others would not use that word. I think that was a really frightening moment for a lot of us to watch that happen and to also, again, as I say, to watch some of the lawyers in Congress act in ways that didn't quite seem in keeping with what we would expect from folks in our profession. So given that theme for Law Day this year, I'd really appreciate having, you know, a little bit of a back and forth with you about what you see as our responsibility as lawyers to to uphold the rule of law. And then when you see something like what happened on January 6th, you know, what are the lessons that we should draw from that as a profession about our responsibilities? That's a really big question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so let's let's start with the rule of law in the context of what happened on January 6th, because I had a really challenging opportunity, Kim, a week after January 6th to speak about the rule of law to a group of international bar leaders. It had been, you know, long previously scheduled. Well, what mm -hmm. in the world do you say? about America and the rule of law a week after January 6th when you're talking to an international audience who, by the way, was possibly even more aghast at what happened mm. than we were. 
um, mm-hmm. because we are still an absolute beacon to the world of mm-hmm. a justice system and a democracy that works. So the way I put it in context was after sort of expressing and speaking to the collective horror that we all felt on that day was to talk about it in the context of the triumph of the rule of law. Because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we have rules about elections and they need to be followed. If they're not followed, we have a system of how you can bring a dispute to an open court that is independent of the executive branch, who holds an open proceeding to fully hear whatever the complaint is that's been brought. And we did all of that all the way up to our highest court. Then the Electoral College met as it is supposed to do. It voted the way it's supposed to vote. And at the end of the day on January 6th, the important part to me, or an important part, is that we ended it with our Congress back in session, right? doing what they're supposed to do under the law, which was to certify the results of a fairly conducted election. And they did that. So the rule of law triumphed is, at the end of the day, the truth. It wasn't a pretty path. (laughs) I certainly agree with that. But at the end of the day, the system worked the way it was supposed to. And we had a peaceful transition of power on January 20th. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, each of us individually has a responsibility to think about what we as lawyers should be doing when we're engaging in public debate in the public square. That is Mm -hmm. different from the disciplinary rules and rule 11 and the stuff that is around what do you have to do, right? Right. Because I don't think what you have to do else you'll get yourself in trouble with the licensing authorities ought to be the standard by which we govern ourselves. We should Mm -hmm. be always aspiring higher than that. Mm -hmm. Let me put it this way. I don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to set about my day to not violate any criminal statute. <laughs> right? I don't think about it that way. My, my bar right. is for my conduct is not that low. Sure. I would like for lawyers to sort of approach the disciplinary rules in the same way. They are a floor. They are certainly not the top of where we should aspire. Mm-hmm. And it is my judgment that lawyers ought not in the public square make a statement about a matter of public importance that they know is factually incorrect, Mm -hmm. period. I don't think it needs to be a disciplinary issue. I think it's simply what we are called to as officers of the court. We don't knowingly Mm -hmm. make false statements, period. Right. Absolutely. One of the things that has come out of all of the activity in in January is a call for better civics education, right? That 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 part of the issue or or maybe maybe a small part, but at least part of the issue was that too many people don't understand our system and they don't understand the way that that things function and so it's easy to sort of confuse people 
when they don't have that basic information. Is that one of the lessons that, that you draw from, from that experience? And, and if so, do you also see a role for lawyers to play in helping people better understand the way that our various systems work? Yeah, there's no question, Kim, that that is a crying need still in our country. I had the the privilege to, because I live in Arizona, um, to get to know and to work with some Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who, when she left the, the bench, formed a focus on civics education, among other things, precisely because she saw and understood the critical connection between civics education on the one hand and upholding the rule of law in our democracy on the other. They are absolutely intertwined. An educated electorate who understands what the role of each of our branches of government is, is critical to advancing the mission of any one of them. Um, So Mm -hmm. yes, lawyers have an important role to play, not just in educating people about the court's and the the third branch of government, but it also in helping people to understand how the three branches of government interrelate with one another. An example is I pull my hair out every time I read a newspaper article about a court decision where in the very first sentence, they articulate which president nominated that federal judge to go on the bench. That is, Mm -hmm. should be meaningless. Um, And often is to the result, not always, but it is not an appropriate place to start with understanding a judicial opinion any more than it is appropriate to start with what was the result? Do I like the result? And then I will work my way backwards to decide whether or not the law was applied correctly. That's not the Mm -hmm. way the law works. The law works to apply a set of principles to a set of facts, not to derive a particular result in a particular case. Yeah. So so the January 6th event came on the tail end of a year that, that none of us will forget. 2020 asked an enormous amount of all of us. You know, the, the fact that, that we are doing this interview and I am sitting in my house and you are sitting in your house is a reflection um, of what that year was like. So both the pandemic and the really significant racial reckoning that came out of 2020 had an impact on the law and the lawyers and our system. So I want to talk about the pandemic first, and then I, and then I want to talk about you know the issues of, of race and that continue to permeate, permeate um, our country. One of the things that the pandemic required of us was to shut down a bunch of courthouses so that people couldn't you know show up for jury duty and trials and you know uh, settlement conferences and. That was a really tough transition for a lot of people and for a lot of courts. So one of the things that I that I would love to talk about with you is some of the work that the ABA is doing to to think about how to learn some lessons, frankly, for our judicial system from the pandemic and from the ways that we've used um, technology in the pandemic that potentially could actually help us create more access to justice going forward. Um, you, you keep asking these really small questions, Kim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, 
that's obviously a huge question. And so sure. here's here's how we approached it at the ABA. Judy Perry Martinez, whom you referenced when we um, began this conversation, my predecessor and I, last spring, immediately as the pandemic settled in on all of us, formed um, what we called at the ABA the Practice Forward Task Force. And the idea behind Practice Forward was to gather together all of the resources at the American Bar Association and all the different constituent parts of our very complex organization to put in one place the resources that lawyers need to figure out how to practice in this moment that we're still, many of us, still in. It ranges from things about what are the ethical issues that you have to think about perhaps a little differently when you are working from home, ranging from Mm -hmm. cybersecurity issues to, you know, all sorts of other things, including how do you mentor and raise up young lawyers in this environment in which everybody's, you know, or many anyway, are still working from home almost 100% of the time. Uh, There are Mm -hmm. a whole host of those issues. And Practice Forward is trying to assemble and stay on top of the tools that lawyers need and courts need to move forward. We Mm -hmm. are going to be facing an incredible backlog of both civil and criminal cases for a while. We just will be because you can't kind of put things on partial hold and then not expect a a whole host of issues when things start up again. So we're all going to have to be patient. We're all going to have to find other alternatives for resolving our disputes. We're going to have to be Mm -hmm. open to things like modified jury trials. I'm not saying anyone should be compelled to take one, but I'm saying that there are opportunities for us to think about new ways to resolve disputes. People are now doing, as you know, remote jury trials. Whether they work or they don't work remains to be seen, but there are certainly some places where folks are experiencing great success. What we have to be careful of in this moment is making sure that neither our justice system nor the lawyers involved in the justice system are unable to do their jobs by virtue of things that are insidious discrimination in our process and our system. For example, Mm -hmm. um, the Practice Forward group did a survey of statistically significant number of ABA members. And women reported lots more challenges than men did. Lawyers of color reported lots more challenges than white lawyers did. We have to be incredibly vigilant at this moment to make sure that we don't lose any of the progress that has been made in both of those regards. And in fact, that we actually continue to advance the causes of women and lawyers of color in our profession, not just sort of hold our own. We we speak about it in terms of not losing ground, but this is a time for all the other reasons you just referenced, where we need to be moving those causes forward, where we need to be sensitizing all of the justice system stakeholders to the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in all respects 
of our justice system. And we have a great deal more work to do in that space, obviously. Definitely, definitely. And I'm, I'm so appreciative that you made that point. I mean, there have been a lot of conversations, obviously, in, in you know, my space is, is higher education, but sort of watching people, particularly women, as you say, who even in 2021, bear the brunt of caregiving and, and, and housework and, and all of that good stuff, you know, trying to juggle all of those pieces of life in a world where lots of us who have school-age kids suddenly became homeschoolers. And so trying to run a full-time job, trying to run a full-time school, trying to you know do all of this different work has been a really great moment, I think, for us to realize even more acutely how important it is to create opportunities for flexibility, to respect that people have both personal lives and professional lives, and to figure out how we can craft a profession that actually makes it possible, as you say, for people to be successful, whether there's a pandemic going on um, or not. So I hope that there are some lessons that we draw from that as well. The other piece of the puzzle in 2020, as, as you suggested, was about our, particularly our criminal justice system and policing in this country and the many ways in which policing has not been a, a race-neutral proposition, unfortunately. Um, and I know that the ABA has long done work on race, and there's been a commission on you know, racial and ethnic diversity in the profession. I know also that this year or last year, the ABA started the Legal Education Police Practices Consortium. And so there's this really interesting and I think important work that's that's emanating from the the ABA. So I want to I want to give you an opportunity to talk about some of that work and and frankly what what are your hopes about what the ABA can do here because again it is this incredibly important organization that all of us really have a relationship to um, as lawyers in in the U.S. So the leadership of the ABA here is is really critical. So if you want to talk, whether you want to talk about the work that's going on with the Police Practices Consortium um, or some of the other work from the ABA, I think that would be great for people to hear. I want to talk about all of it. Um, so the, <laughs> the, the, the first thing I will say is that the American Bar Association only has four goals. And one of them is to eliminate bias and to enhance diversity in our profession and in our justice system. And I wanna just pause for a second on the word eliminate. How important, how big is that goal, right? We're not about reducing bias. We're not about Mm -hmm. seeing if we can move the needle a little bit on bias. We, on paper, in writing, set our goal to eliminate bias. That is gonna be uh, a challenge that will outlive you and me, I I fear, um, and Mm -hmm. go on for a very long time. One of the things that you mentioned is the Police Practices Consortium, and I'd love to talk for a second a little bit about that. This is something that we, we launched with the deans of more than 50 ABA accredited law schools around the country. And the idea is to come together through the American Bar Association to work on policing practices, modernizing them, bringing them into the 21st century, learning from all of the challenges in recent years that we have faced as a nation. 
and at the same time, allowing each law school to find a way to implement these concepts in a, in a fashion that works for them. So, for mm-hmm. example, a law school in one of our major urban uh, centers may have a very different approach that it wants to take to thinking about, talking about, and teaching about these issues than a law school in a smaller community in perhaps a more rural state. I mean, each law school has the freedom and the challenge to figure out what works in their community, how to engage the stakeholders in their community, as as well as their stakeholders at their law school, to think about and, and work on and address these issues. So it's a very exciting program that will continue to roll out in the in the coming months um, in all of these law schools. And of course, we'll roll out differently once we begin to be able to be in person again uh, in our teaching settings and, and uh, in our law schools. But the work around racial justice and racial equity in our country is, shall we say, multifaceted um, mm-hmm. and something that each one of us has to work on as lawyers and frankly, just as human beings, as citizens of our country. We have, in addition to all of the challenges that our Black community faces, we also now have repeated atrocious and reprehensible violence against Asian Americans uh, as a consequence of the pandemic, for example. There's just no excuse for that. It's un-American, and it's Mm -hmm. certainly something that lawyers as a group must stand up to and call out. So we, you know, we do that as well. Yeah. So uh, ob- obviously, as Dean, I have uh, lots of occasions to, to, to give sort of pep talk speeches and introductions uh, and welcomes. And one of the things that I always say when I'm giving talks like that is that law is a righteous profession, right? That, that we want people in this profession who obviously are going to be doing a range of, of work, but the hope is that everybody comes to this profession with a sense of the importance of justice and the importance of the rule of law and the importance of equity. So I think it's incredibly meaningful that the ABA is doing the work that, that it is doing on these issues. Um, I want to also give you a chance to talk about the work that the ABA is doing in terms of diversifying the profession, because, you know, it's, it's incredibly unfortunate when we look at the numbers and we see how few particularly Black and brown folks there are in our profession, uh, especially when you get to the the higher tiers, but just sort of in general. And we were also sort of talking about women in the profession earlier in our conversation. And I know that that is something that the ABA has also spent a lot of time thinking about. Are there any particular projects in terms of the diversifying the profession work that you want to make sure people know about? So we have an entire Commission on Racial and Ethnic Diversity in the Profession, which you referenced, which is devoted explicitly to that issue. And we do, for example, a model diversity survey every year, which allows law firms to respond to a set of model questions that are asked of law firms around the country. And then that information can be made available by the law firm to include in information it provides to prospective clients. 
because mm -hmm. prospective clients often want to compare law firm A with law firm B, right? On how they are doing on racial and ethnic diversity issues and gender issues. So yeah. by having a model survey, we even the playing field to make sure that when law firms are responding, they are responding based off of the same set of questions and the same set of information. So that is one mm -hmm. thing that, that the ABA uh, does in this regard. We also um, do important work in the pipeline, which mm -hmm. it is a long pipeline, right? We do work yeah. to assist students to get into law school in the first place. We provide legal opportunity scholarships to diverse law students who need that financial help in order to be able to get through law school. We have important clerkship and other leadership development opportunity programs for diverse law students to assist them in having access to and getting the experiences that other students get to give them a step up when they get into their legal careers and out of law school. All of those are important initiatives to level the playing field. You know, I have, I have come to learn the difference between equality and equity. Mm -hmm. And the example that, that I always use, I'm a, I'm, I'm a short girl. I'm like five foot two. If the job is seeing over uh, an eight foot wall and I'm standing next to LeBron James and you give us the same size box to stand on, I'm still not going to be able to see over the wall. Okay, that's equality. Equity is giving me a bigger box in the first place mm -hmm. because I'm not the same. It's looking at yeah. me individually as a person and assessing what that person needs in order to be able to be equal to the person next to her. Right. Understanding that is, I think, a powerful first step for all of us to, to really get in it about what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is so, that is so perfect. And I, and I hope that there are going to be some people who listen to this podcast who hear that and it, and it's a good uh, way for them to shift their mindset. Cause I think that that's really critical. So I want to wrap up by talking a little bit about what, well, well, we're sitting in the midst of recruiting season for, for law school and we've had um, an uptick in applications this year across the board um, for law schools. So that's really interesting. It feels like this is a good opportunity or that I can give you a good opportunity here to talk to those folks who are right now are deciding about going to law school. What would be your pitch to them, right? I mean, what is it about the law and being a lawyer and what is it about this profession that you think people should should know and what should people who are now thinking about going to law school you know what should they be thinking about in terms of what it takes to be a lawyer what it takes to be a successful lawyer in 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 the world in which we're living right now so if you're thinking about becoming a lawyer there are two pieces i think you need to hang on to at the same time the first piece is about stepping into a tradition. There is enormous value in the traditions of the law. 
in the majesty of the law, in accepting and, and incorporating into who you are as a lawyer, the fact that you stand in the shoes of those who have come before you in this country for centuries in making the law work for our nation and for its citizens. The other piece is to understand the power that you have as a lawyer to improve on those traditions, to make them better, that that too is your responsibility. You can honor the traditions and move them forward at the same time. And I believe that is the highest calling of lawyers is to do both. Perfect. You and I could ex- could exchange talking points because that that is something that I that I say a lot as well. And 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 our profession is incredibly powerful and incredibly important. And and I'm always proud of the folks who decide to to join us here as lawyers. So that that's the end of our conversation today. And I think that was a really wonderful place to end. I so appreciate the time that you gave us today, and I'm really excited to see. You know, all of us who were in charge of anything during 2020 definitely got a got a trial by fire. So um, I'm hoping that the 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 end end part of your term is maybe a little less tumultuous than <laughs> than how it started. But it's been really really wonderful talking to you and and getting to hear from you. And and thank you so so much for your time today. Great to be with you, Kim. Thank you so much. And stay healthy. And I wish you well. Thank you. Same to you. Take care. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.